This week we are getting back into our uh, study of Mark. You know, we've taken a couple of months break as we've done some other things and going through the holidays. Uh, but we wanted to keep going through the book of Mark. And uh, we're picking up here back in chapter 5, start of the very start of Mark chapter 5. Now, notice in, in reading through this passage, there are subtle shifts in the narrative that direct our attention to certain actions or people at different times. Uh, it struck me that Mark 5 was sort of a two-act play, if you will, and the first act being these 20 verses that we're going to look at this morning, and the second act being the remainder of the chapter. To that, to that end, I've kind of structured my outline into scenes. So if you look at your, your note page there, I've got it marked out as in separate scenes. Now, for a little bit of context, as we walk into Mark chapter 5, remember that Mark 5 picks up immediately following that harrowing storm on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus calmed with a word the prior night. The disciples had just witnessed witnessed a display of Jesus' great power, and likely some of them really began to understand who Jesus really was at that point. The, the account we're going to look at today is found in all three synoptic Gospels, Marth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and each of these Gospels places this the morning after that storm. So with this stage set in your mind's eye, let us raise the curtain of Act 1, Scene 1 of Mark chapter 5. Let's begin by reading the first few verses here, or first number of verses. Mark 5, beginning in verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of, the, come out of that man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send, him out, send them out of the country. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. I know that was kind of a large section, but that's kind of the first scene of this section. 
So scene one, we have in verses one to 13, Jesus encounters the demoniac. Jesus encounters the demoniac. Now, verse one kind of gives us the setting and it reminds us of what had just happened, what had just occurred. Jesus and the disciples come ashore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, as some versions will read. We see, uh, and as we see at the end of this section, we see this as part of a larger region known as the Decapolis. We don't know for sure exactly where in this region these events took place, other than somewhat near the shore and had to be fairly close to a village. Part of the uncertainty that we have comes from variations in the text. It depends on which Bible version and which gospel you're reading. The King James and New King James, the location in Matthew is the country of the Gergesenes, while Mark and Luke report the country of the Gadarians. More modern translations, the ESV, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, still have that variation between Matthew and the others, but Matthew as recording the country of the Gadarians and Mark and Luke listing the country of the Gerasenes. Well, which is it? The best answer I found is that is based on the intended audience of the gospel writers. Mark and Luke are both writing for largely Gentile audiences, non-Jewish audiences, and so may have named the region after a largely well-known city, though the city itself was likely too far away uh, to actually be included in the event. Matthew, on the other hand, was writing to a more Jewish audience and likely referenced a more specific city that, the, that would have been more familiar to the Jews of the area. As far as the difference between the Bible versions, it is just another small variance between manuscripts available, nothing of great significance. Now this area, the, the region of the Gadarians, as uh, my new King James here lists it, this area was largely Gentile. There may have been some Jewish communities in the area, uh, but the area was likely very Hellenistic, Greek culture, and, and pagan. It has been suggested by some that the area was populated with apostate or fallen Hellenistic Jews that saw better commercial dealings and financial gain by living and dealing like and with the Gentiles in the region. And we'll touch on that again a little bit later. Now, you'll remember that we mentioned earlier that, that the events that are happening follow that storm on, this, on the Sea of Galilee that Christ uh, calms with a word. The disciples had just witnessed this, and now they come, they set foot on, this, on the other side, on the shore, and immediately Jesus is in, engaged with this wild, crazy man. And verses 2 to 13, we, kind of, we see the encounter here. 
Now, first we see Jesus coming out of the boat after the crossing. Mark then keeps the story moving by using his favorite word, immediately. Mark always uses that word to keep the story moving, to keep the action moving as we go from event to event in his gospel. Immediately after Jesus reaches the shore and disembarks from the boat, he encounters a demon-possessed man coming out of the tombs where he had been living near the mountains. Now in verses 3 to 5, we see the demoniac, the demon-possessed man. And verses 3 and 5 give us a bit of, kind of interrupt the narrative and give us a bit of a description of him. Uh, Not only of his condition, but a little bit of the life that he had had up to this moment. Now, something else to note, Matthew indicates that there were actually two men that were demon-possessed in this encounter, um, but he doesn't give nearly as much detail in the account as Mark and Luke do. Uh, But Mark and Luke don't specifically mention that this man was alone. So it may be that the man that we actually have the encounter with uh, presented in Mark may be something of a leader among the two or or possibly was the more alarming case that the second man just was unnoticed. Now, Mark is the only gospel writer to give as much information as he does about the demoniac. Luke gives a few details. Matthew simply says he came exceedingly fierce. Mark's description seems to be a faithful reproduction of information given to the disciples by the, by the neighbors and the townspeople that knew, knew who the man was and had, had interactions with him or knew to avoid him, as the case may be. The comment that we have here about, li- about his, having his dwelling among the tombs indicates that this is where the man lived. Luke specifically says that he lived among the tombs and not in a house. So these, now these tombs were probably either above ground tombs that were built on top of and above ground or were likely cave, natural caves or Uh, alcoves that were dug into the hillside. These would have been considered kind of unclean and and located outside of town. So there seems to be an indication of, of a voluntary outcast from society as this guy is dwelling among the tombs, as this is a display of his abnormality. Now, the people of the town had, on occasions, apparently tried to bind him and to subdue him with no effect. Other translations add here and add uh, any more or no longer. They could bind him no, uh, no longer or any more. This further, this seems to be an indication of his abnormal strength. It, it seems that his strength had grown over time as his condition worsened as his oppression to demonic control grew. Verse 4 continues the description by showing what had been done. It says that he had been bound with shackles and chains. 
Shackles refer to trying to bind his feet. The King James Version reads fetters. Or binding his feet. The reference to chains may indicate binding other parts of his body, maybe around his, uh, around his body, uh, or a reference to metal bindings uh, included with the shackles, or maybe a reference to metal bindings including the shackles. Either way, all of these were to no avail. The demon or demons controlling him allowed him great strength so that he pulled the chains apart and broke the shackles. One source mentioned that the word that used there uh, in the shackles is almost the idea of rubbing. So it almost seems like he was, he had, his feet were together and, he, and rubbed and just broke them apart. Mark mentions here that no one was able to tame him. Now that word tame can also read subdue. But this adds to the idea that he was wild and uncontrollable. Now verse 5 gives a little more detail of the misery that this man experienced. It says always indicating how he spent his time. Well, night and day, always night and day. Night and day is more specific. He spent night and day, by the sounds of it, every night and day among the tombs, wandering around the tombs, crying out. Now, this word crying out is a way that indicates he was constantly and repeatedly crying out. The word itself means strong or loud yells like that of a surprise, like of horror. To add to his wildness, he seems to have repeatedly cut himself with sharp stones or flints. It's likely that most of his body was covered either in scars or cuts in various stages of healing. Now, after giving us this description of the, of the demoniac, Mark shifts back to the encounter that is started back in verse 2 of him interacting with Jesus. It says, the demoniac saw Jesus from afar. This seems to indicate that it was the morning after the storm on the lake that Jesus had come and, and an, enough daylight there that he was able to see him. Having seen Jesus, the man ran to him. Now, it's possible he didn't recognize who it was. He may have just thought, oh, it's somebody else coming this way and chases down to, to attack or uh, assail him. Um, it may also have been that because of the demon possession, the demons, he was kind of drawn to Jesus because they had... They recognized him. We don't know for sure, but he ran to meet Jesus. Now, Matthew tells us that there were two men that were fierce or violent and that it was unsafe for anyone to pass by that way. So it seems likely that any locals would have regarded the scene so far as another violent attack upon some travelers who made the mistake of landing in the wrong spot. But Mark 
also tells us that the man ran to Jesus and worshipped him. Now the word worship, that is the idea of, of falling down, bowing down in reverence and, and in, in worship. Bowing down before uh, a deity. And it may have been the, the demons in control of him knew as they, maybe as they approached, they knew, recognized who Jesus was and had to kneel before Christ. Now, the sight of this man rushing towards them was likely a terrifying sight for the disciples. But Jesus appears to wait calmly for the man to approach. Now, if he started out with the thought of an attack upon Jesus or the others, it wasn't carried out. The man may have felt an irresistible pull or draw towards Jesus. And once near him, likely the demon being forced to submit bows at Jesus' feet. Now, having arrived at Jesus' feet, the man yells out with a great loud voice and the demon speaking through him says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, that first part, what have I to do with you, Jesus? That's very similar to the phrase we were given way back in chapter one of the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. It was that remark from the demon of, what, what business do we have with each other? Why are you here? The demon recognized Christ for who he is. Now, some have suggested that this man may have been Jewish because of the use of the title, Most High God. While that was the common title used in Judaism to refer to, to God, it was also used by, by Gentiles to refer to the God of the Jews. So we don't know for sure if this man was Jewish or not. Though the, the area was likely highly Gentile. Now, the, this demon also begs Jesus not to torment them. Matthew's account reads, you have come, uh, have you come to torment us before the time? Indicating the future judgment and damnation of Satan and his cohorts. Luke includes a little bit later in the exchange that the demons are afraid to be sent into the abyss. Luke 8, 31. The tormentors are themselves anticipating and dreading judgment and seek exemption from torment. The tormentors are themselves anticipating and dreading and seek exemption from torment. In verse 8, we see Jesus' command to the demon to come out of the man. To leave him. Now, the placement here may actually be a comment of explanation. It may have actually been said earlier. Jesus may have said this to the demon after he first addressed him, but before the begging for leniency. Now, why, why do I make that comment? Well, the for he said at the beginning of this verse tells us the reason for the demon's begging. 
So the demon delayed the compulsory obedience to parlay, to bargain with Jesus for leniency, for more favorable treatment. He's already been commanded to leave. He knows he has to leave, but he's delaying so that he can get a little bit of leniency or to make some sort of deal. Then in verse 9, Jesus asks him, what is your name? Now, this may have been directed to the demon or it may have been directed to the man himself. If it was directed to the man himself, it may have been to get the man to recall his identity as to distinguish himself from the possessing spirit or spirits. Now, in view of the pleading for leniency, it seems that this question may have been directed at the spirits. What is your name? Now, in, in ancient times, it was thought that if you could learn the demon's name, the exorcism was more likely to succeed. You would have a level of control over him or over it. But Jesus never used any of the complex formulas or rituals common to the day for exorcisms. He didn't need them. He simply commanded them, and that was enough. It's been suggested here that Jesus asks for the demon's name to reveal the complexity of this situation. Now, in verse 9, we find out more information. Verse 9, we find that there are actually multiple demons afflicting this man. As Jesus converses with him, the man is likely, it, it, with the man, excuse me, it is likely that at least one demon, possibly some sort of, of leader, is speaking for them and through the man. The response to Jesus' question that his name is Legion isn't exact, doesn't exactly mean, or doesn't mean an exact number. A, a full Roman legion, where the term comes from, was about 6,000 infantrymen. But the Roman term had impressed itself into Jewish thinking, representing vast numbers, a complex organization, and invincible strength and relentless oppression. So whether it was 6,000 spirits or not, the man had an army of evil spirits indwelling, tormenting, and oppressing him. Now, in this passage, we see three requests given to Jesus. And here is the first one. Here's the first one. This one is made by the demons themselves. They know they must leave this man. Jesus has given that command. It is now compulsory for them to obey but they begged him not to send them out of the country. Now, this request may, may be equivalent, Mark's equivalent to Luke's account of asking not to be sent into the abyss. It seems that the demons wanted to stay in this region where they had long tormented this man and had caused havoc. Why the demons would prefer this country or one country over another is a mystery of the angelic and spiritual realm. We just don't know 
Um, but it seems that they, that is the case here. In verse 12, the demons beg Jesus to let them enter a herd of pigs that was nearby. Matthew indicates that the herd was a good ways off, but it's safe to assume that they were at least close enough to be seen. And Jesus grants the request. The demoniac is healed. He is freed immediately. The demons leave the man and enter the swine. All the synoptics mention that the spirits actually enter the swine, thus possessing them as they had possessed the man. Now, why Jesus permitted the demons to go to the swine is not given, but he may have thought it was best for the man. It at least gives evidence of the, a, a physical evidence, of, if you will, of the change. For for this man to see the destruction of the pigs at the influence of the demons would serve as an unforgettable example of the fearful evil that he had been from which he had been delivered. Now this herd of swine is destroyed by the demons. The demons enter the pigs, and we are told that there are about two thousand. And they cause them to run violently down a steep embankment and headlong into the Sea of Galilee, where they drowned. The entire herd, all 2,000 of them. We should note here that Satan and his cohort are bent on destruction. This legion would have and was destroying this man. And as soon as they had left and entered the pigs, they destroyed them. To Satan and his demons, there is little to no difference between a pig or animal and a human being. Now, Mark is the only one to mention the number of the pigs and the number of the swine. But I don't think we, we, we shouldn't assume that that was the number of demons. We aren't, we are told the number of the pigs likely because it was the entire herd, all of them frantically reacting to the demons and stampeded as one. This number also indicates that the owners had gone into pig farming on a large scale. And the total destruction of the herd is too big to be explained by a natural event. You don't just wipe out 2,000 pigs on a random act of nature. It was a definite and specific destruction. Now, as I mentioned Earlier, there may have been apostate Hellenistic Jews living in the area. It has been suggested that this herd of swine may have been owned by such who saw the financial benefit of the pig market in this Gentile region. Or the owners just may have been indifferent Jews that simply employed Gentiles to care for the pigs simply as, simply as business for financial gain at the cost of conscience. I can't personally deal with the pigs, but I'll employ you to handle them and I'll just make the money off of it. 
if either of these is true, then the loss of so many pigs and likely all the profit may have served as judgment and jarred these Jews' conscience. It is generally likely assumed that the owners are Gentiles just because it's pigs, because Jews can't deal with the swine. And some have argued, well, why would Jesus just destroy these, let these pigs be destroyed at, and at such great cost? I think the, Jew, the Jewish explanation is uh, plausible. We also need to understand that Christ, as creator, owns everything anyway. It's his pigs to do with what he wants. So that is, is the first scene of this first act. As we move into verse 14 to 20, we'll see the second scene. Picking up in verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it, what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had, who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how, it has been, how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in, in, Decop in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So here we see scene two, the rejection. Scene two, the rejection. Now, first off, we get a report of what had happened. Following the destruction of the herd, the herd of pigs, the herdsmen, those that were feeding and tending the pigs, ran back to the nearby town. The word there in verse 14, fled, is used in the sense of running to escape from something or someone. Now, not only did they run back to town, they started telling everyone in the area and in town that they could, and at the very least, probably their employers, what had happened. The news spread, but people from the town and the surrounding countryside came to see what had happened with their own eyes. So here we see some of the evidence given. Here the townspeople come and find Jesus who had remained there with the demoniac. And what do they find? Jesus sitting there with the wild man from the mountains who was sitting and clothed and in his right mind. In verse 16, we see that those who saw what had happened told the townspeople the series of events. This likely refers to the disciples as, as uh, eyewitnesses, uh, but likely includes those herdsmen as well. Mark lists three qualities of the man that contrast his previous appearance. 
three qualities that many in the town hadn't ever seen or hadn't seen in a long time of this man. First, the idea of sitting. This is contrast of the present as being a, a, a restful condition with that of uh, contrasting that with the, the roaming and raving wild man that he had been for who knows how long. Secondly, he, he was clothed. This contrasts, this is a contrast with the present new condition with the previous. He would routinely wander about without clothes on. Luke specifically says he was constantly without clothes, likely on purpose because of the demonic control. So what happened here? Likely one of the disciples got an extra garment or robe out of the boat. Thirdly, he was in his right mind. This certainly declares the sanity of of the man being returned, but the word also speaks of self-control. The former demoniac was now a self-controlled, rational, sane individual versus what he had been under the control and torment of the legion of demons. After seeing the man, After hearing the testimony again and being in Jesus' presence, the second request of Jesus is made by the townspeople. Verse 15 tells us that they were afraid. They were gripped by fear. Not a reverential awe of Jesus that that the disciples had after Jesus calmed the storm, but a fear of Jesus and the power he had. They seemed to know they were in the presence of the supernatural. This caused them to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The word plead here has the idea of requesting earnestly. The King James renders the word pray, giving the sense of a request with the fervency of an earnest prayer. Their concern was to get Jesus out of their region. They seemed to conclude that it would cost what it would cost them if someone with the power like Jesus had remained in their land. If he can cause 2,000 pigs to go drown themselves, what what is he going to do to my job? What is he going to do to my income? He's going to ruin the market. He needs to get out. Their reaction was to cure the cause of their seen catastrophe. Mark seems to be stressing that just the power or act of the healing is not enough to engender faith from the observers or provide a foundation for it but that it all rests on the willingness of the observers to see the one behind the miracle, the one at the center of the miracle. They feared more financial loss if Jesus stayed. They were afraid of losing more than accepting Jesus and rejoicing over the healing of the demoniac. Luke tells us the whole crowd begged him to leave. This was pretty much a unanimous plea. Get 
out of here. Jesus honors their request to leave. The first part of verse 18 tells us that he got back in the boat. Jesus wasn't going to force himself upon those who didn't want him. And so he granted their request. But we see some instructions before he leaves. As he gets back into the boat, the former demoniac called out and begged him to come along to come along with him. He wanted to stay with Jesus. He wanted to be with him there. Jesus told him, "No. This is the third request. This is the only request in the passage that Jesus denies." And it is the only request to seek a continual fellowship with Jesus. So why would he deny it? Well, Jesus gives the man some instructions before sending him on his way. Jesus tells him to go back to his home. The home he had before he spent all his time among the tombs. He tells him to go to his Friends, the better way to understand this would be as own people, the idea of family and friends, but it's the idea even larger than immediate family. It is the idea of of the people in the town, friends that are larger than your immediate household. Jesus basically tells the man, go pick up your life from before the demons and return to having normal relationships again. Jesus tells the man to tell of the great things the Lord had done for him. Now, Jesus may be referring to himself here as Lord, but I think it is the idea more of the idea, the God of the Old Testament idea. And we, Luke gives this idea in his account as well. Jesus seems to be telling the man, go tell people what God did for you. Is that saying what I did for you? Just go tell people what God did for you, what the Lord had done for you, and the compassion you were shown. Now, Mark's account also stresses God's grace upon the man. Jesus tells him that he should tell of how God had compassion on you. This shows the undeserved favor the grace of God that the man was shown. One author notes, divine compassion as a definite act had granted deliverance. Divine compassion as a definite act had granted deliverance. Jesus normally asks or tells the person not to talk about the miracle, so not to hinder his ministry. But here, Jesus does the opposite. The former demoniac is told to tell everyone what had happened to him. This would not affect Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and it certainly wasn't going to affect or hinder any ministry in the area because he wouldn't be here. He wouldn't be ministering in this area. But Jesus leaves a witness of his grace behind. And in verse 20, we're told what 
the demoniac does. He tells us that the man did just that. He went all over the Decapolis proclaiming the grace of God in his life. Now, the Decapolis I mentioned earlier, this was a, a grouping of 10 Greek cities. All but one were east of the Jordan River. Now, Mark is the only one to mention the Decapolis. Now, these cities uh, seem really, some think of them as forming a league or confederation of some sort. It seems that the only thing they really shared was geographical proximity to each other and Greek culture. It was thought that they had formed a type of league for political, economic, or military purposes, but that doesn't seem to be the understanding, understanding now. The former demoniac rightly connects Jesus to his experience. And it seems that in exalting Jesus as his deliverer, the man understood that he was glorifying God. Now, Mark is the only one to mention any result. The man's story caused astonishment, and all who heard it were amazed and marveled. But Mark says nothing of any showing faith. They all marveled at what had happened, but there doesn't seem to be any response. So what's the main point of the passage? Like the storm on the sea, we see here Jesus's ultimate authority and control over his creation. No angelic or demonic force can reckon with his authority or sovereignty. We see here that no formal training is needed to be a faithful witness for Jesus. The healed demoniac had all he needed to tell what Jesus had done for him. He simply told of the transformation in his life worked by Jesus and his amazing grace. As believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have a commission to tell others what the Lord has done for us and the saving grace we have experienced. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage. The truths that we see here of Christ's ultimate and complete authority and power as sovereign, not only of the physical world, but more importantly, equally, over the spiritual world. We thank you for the example, the, 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 re the revelation of his power in this passage, and for the example of a transformed life, the desire to seek to be with Christ, and the fervency and faithfulness of sharing the testimony. Help us to have the desire to continue to be with Jesus 
as we study the word daily, as we seek to spend time in prayer, but help us also to be just as faithful in our witness, individually and as a church. We thank you for this passage and what it has shown. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.